Hello, and welcome to Get Me Another, a podcast where we explore those movies that followed in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. My name is Chris Iannacone, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Rob Lamorgis. Why are you trying to put me in this suit? I need to wear my jungle clothes, Chris. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's a podcast. You can't wear your jungle clothes for the podcast. Uh <laughs> Today is episode six of our Get Me Another Indiana Jones series, and we are very excited to have a special guest with us today, Austin Trunick, author of the Canon Film Guide. Welcome to the show, Austin. Thank you, Chris, Rob. I, I appreciate the invite. I'm excited to be here. Oh, we're excited to have you. Now, the Canon Film Guide is at the moment a two-volume set. It is soon to be eventually to be a three-volume set of books that chronicles every single canon film from the Golan and Globus era. Uh, and I got to say, this book is fantastic. These books, I keep saying this book because it's it's one work in multiple volumes, but it is, it is an absolutely indispensable resource for analysis, for behind-the-scenes knowledge on canon films. Uh, it has been an invaluable resource for this podcast. And I can tell you, I'll be buying volume three as soon as it is available. Oh, thank you so much for saying that. I, that, that means a lot. Oh, it's really, it's really terrific. It's the sort of thing you could just, I mean, there's, it's so exhaustive and you have so many great films. I mean, there's, there's so much to, to dive into. Even the not so great films are fascinating. And that's the thing about canon uh, is it, even the not so great films are really, really interesting. And usually the stories behind these films, at least to me, I, I found them to be as interesting or more interesting than what happens on screen a lot of the time. Uh, that is often the case, yes. And and, <laughs> and we have some behind the scenes stuff today because these two films have some really interesting uh, stuff going on. Now, in several other Get Me Another series, we've examined films that draw from earlier literary or cinematic works. And, and what happens is after the huge success of one of these blockbuster films, there are often new adaptations of the works that inspired them. In our Get Me Another Batman series, we talked about the 90s films of The Shadow and The Phantom. Uh, during our Get Me Another Star Wars series, we explored the subsequent adaptation of Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon. Now today is another such episode because we'll be discussing two films featuring the 19th century literary character and Indiana Jones inspiration, Alan Quatermain. Quatermain. I'm going to ask you about that. Alan <laughs> Quatermain, I think, because that's one of my first questions is, how do you pronounce the name? Yeah, the the proper way would be Quatermain. Like, like it rhymes with Watermain. Watermain. But I, I want to put <laughs> the, another R in there, and they do in the right. movies. Like, that's where it's like, I think they're mispronouncing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all the actors want to add a R to it. Like a, an R, right, in quarter. And then I'm looking at it on the page, I'm like, maybe it's more like Quatermain, like Quatermass. Yeah, yeah. But... Yeah, we're going to go with Quatermain, but but not not with that second. We're going to try to avoid that second R. So <laughs> Canon Films made two Alan Quatermain adaptations in the mid-80s, and the first of them is the 1985 adaptation of King Solomon's Mines. The greatest legend of all time. It is not a fantasy, Mr. Quatermain. About the greatest treasure known to man. Is about to be pursued by the boldest, most daring hero ever to seek the thrill of adventure. Jesse. 
Richard Chamberlain is Alan Quartermain in King Solomon's Mines, joined by an unlikely soldier of fortune. <laughs> in the hands of the enemy. I will have only two words to say to you. Talk or die. That's three words. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> I want to scream! <laughs> Following a mythical trail to the forbidden. Impenetrable. Inescapable. King Solomon's Mines. Join Richard Chamberlain and Sharon Stone for the adventure of a lifetime. I've got it! King Solomon's Mines. The novel King Solomon's Mines was written by English author H. Ryder Haggard and first published in 1885. It was an immediate success and a watershed in adventure fiction, giving rise to the lost world genre that was so prevalent in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. It includes such works as The Man Who Would Be King, Lost Horizon, Arthur Conan Doyle's The Lost World, H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness, and more recently, Michael Crichton's Conga. To put it simply, there's no King Kong without King Solomon's Mines. And at the time of the book's publication, new archaeological discoveries were occurring regularly in Egypt and the Near East, and Ryder's book captured the public's fascination with exploration and ancient civilizations. The character of Alan Quartermain was a model for numerous hunter and explorer characters in the years that followed, and he appeared in 18 novels and short stories by Haggard, which chronicled his life from age 18 to his late 60s. And I can't help think that much the same is true now of Indiana Jones, that between the original films and the young Indiana Jones TV series and the later installments, we see a pretty broad view of that character's life, just as we did with Quartermain. Oh, Absolutely. King Solomon's Minds has been adapted seven times for film and television. Now, the film we're discussing today is the fifth of those adaptations. And we have to say, and I think, Austin, you'll agree, it's a very loose adaptation. Oh, yes. Very loose indeed. <laughs> oh, I, said, I think their their biggest interest was the character and his uh, his similarities to the then hugely popular Indiana Jones character. Absolutely. And you have essentially a public domain, by this point, public domain precursor to Indiana Jones. So it's, you know, it's, uh, it's uh, you know, it's ready-made for the canon treatment. Now, King Solomon's Minds was written by James Silk and Gene Quintano. Now, we discussed the unsung brilliance of Gene Quintano back in the second episode of this series when we discussed his magnificent work that is Canon Films' Treasure of the Four Crowns, which he co-wrote and co-starred in. And he did a number of other Canon I think, films. I think we sung that 
we sung the brilliance of that from the from the mountaintop. Oh my goodness! It sure. is, and the response from people has been great. I I hope it leads them to to, to uh, I hope it leads to just a renaissance of love for Treasure of the Four Crowns because it's amazing. And it's available in 3D for the first time in 40 years now too. With I Kino's know. Blu-ray. That Kino so Blu-ray is just terrific. It's really yeah. really good. We can see it how it was meant to be seen. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, James Silk also wrote some, had some significant canon credits uh, both prior to this and, and after. He wrote Revenge of the Ninja and Ninja 3 The Domination, two movies I love. Uh, he wrote Sahara and later wrote a movie that we covered in our Get Me Another Conan, the Barbarian series, The Barbarians. So he's no slouch either. You have two heavy hitters from canon films because this was a, a pretty big canon production. It was. It was uh, the, the the budget that they put out there for these two million uh, two movies was about twelve twelve and a half million um, combined, <laughs> but Goodbye. that was that was a lot for for absolutely. a canon production at that time. Uh, yeah, and, and it absolutely was a lot, and and I, I do feel like more money went to the first film. Now maybe that's natural. Uh, you know, a lot more money went to Star Trek the Motion Picture than Star Trek Two: The Wrath of Khan. That doesn't necessarily make Star Trek the Motion Picture a better movie. Um, although I, I do love it, but it, it, it's here you could we'll get into it, but you could start to feel some of the 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 money running out in the second film. But you know mm-hmm. it's you know it's got its it's got its charms too. The the first one, uh, King Solomon's Mind, was directed by J. Lee Thompson, who had a long career ranging from the 1950s through the 80s. Uh, he directed Happy Birthday to Me, which we discussed on our Get Me Another Halloween series. Oh, love that one. Oh, yeah. it's so good. As well as Guns of Navarone, Conquest of and Battle for the Planet of the Apes, uh, the reincarnation of Peter Proud, and a whole lot of Charles Bronson pictures for canon films. And he directed Firewalker as well with Chuck Norris for canon, which could fit into your uh, Get Me Another Anita Jones. Uh, You are are very prescient. (laughs) Yes, it will be one of our later episodes. We will definitely be tackling Firewalker, a movie that lives on the fringes of my memory, and I'm very curious to revisit. Mm -hmm. I'll be be curious to see how it lives up to your memory. King Solomon's Mind stars Richard Chamberlain as Alan Quatermain, a pre-total recall Sharon Stone, uh, Herbert Lom, Ken Grampow, and John Rhys-Davies playing what feels like a mirror universe Sala. Like it's, oh, it's evil Sala. And, and it's fascinating because, again, we, as we talked about in our previous episodes, John Rhys-Davies, uh, Welsh, not remotely uh, of Middle Eastern descent. <laughs> No, no. He was the go-to Turkish uh, character actor if they needed one or Arab character actor at that time. It's 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 mind boggling. Different different era. Well, absolutely. There's there's a lot of things in this movie that are clearly from a different era and we'll we'll talk about them as they come. Um, Now, apparently Kathleen Turner was offered a salary of one point five million dollars to play the female lead, but turned it down. And then the role went to Sharon Stone. By mistake? Is that is that what I've heard? Is that what I've read? So yes, that is the popular. Um, I kind of debunk that one a little in my book. The Menachem Golan, who was one of the two cousins at the head of canon, liked to claim that he discovered Sharon Stone. Other people told the tale that he had said, "Get me that stone woman." That was the referring to Kathleen Turner for romancing the stone, as in she was in romancing the stone. 
There but Jay Lee Thompson had, in fact, seen irreconcilable differences, uh, which Sharon Stone has a very she has a small but memorable part in, and sure. brought her in based on that. It, you know what's funny about that story is it feels mm-hmm. like it could be true. Like it may mm-hmm. not be true, but it feels like it could be true. It can fe- it feels like you know Golan could have just said, "Oh, get me that Stone Woman," and uh, and thinking you know of Kathleen Turner, and then they bring in Sharon Stone. But apparently not. But it feels like it, which is what's so great about canon films. And Menachem was just a uh, just as big a part as just as big a participant in his own myth making uh, in the post canon oh, years, and so everything from that story to. The discovery of Jean-Claude Van Damme would change and not exactly be <laughs> that the truth would grow. I guess that would I, I would say that. <laughs> so working on these books, a lot of my I, I've looked into a lot of these things. And unfortunately, like some of them I have to debunk some of them like, OK, this this is they're making things up. They're making it more a better story. But more often than that, the actual stories that I've uncovered or come across or learned about these movies there it's even crazier than the version that <laughs> that we hear um what actually happened so it goes both ways and it more often more often your your canon stories are crazier than than what is previously reported uh, you've just told me that santa claus is real and thank you for that uh- <laughs> <laughs> um, in the lead for king solomon's minds we have richard chamberlain who gained fame in the 1960s on television as dr kildare and he appeared in motion pictures such as The Towering Inferno, as well as the Salkine's Three Musketeers movies. And later, he became the king of the network miniseries in efforts such as Shogun and The Thornbirds, and was the original Jason Bourne in the late TV, the late 80s TV adaptation of Robert Ludlum's novel. And, you know, he's one of those, he's had a terrific career. I think he's terrific in these movies. He's got the right balance of swagger and a light comic touch. He's not always served by the scripts, but I think he's terrific. I would agree with you. He is, makes it a wonderful sort of soldier of fortune, roguish, charming. Absolutely. Uh, Indiana Jones type. I'm going to keep saying Indiana Jones here, but he is, yeah, he's got a great smile. You can, he, he seems mischievous. He's, yeah. he's really perfect here uh, as, as, as this character, even though he doesn't look like the character that's described in the books, he makes a great Alan Quarterman. Yeah. And I, what I love most about him is, uh, of of any that we've seen so far, he has an arrogance to him, but yes. like a good amount of arrogance uh, compared to some of the others. Uh, anyway, it's just and the best beard, <laughs> the best beard so far. Oh, definitely the best beard. And, and and I think you're right about a good amount of arrogance, which, which sometimes comes into play because it doesn't always things don't always work out for him. Like some of his some of his plans, some of his like, oh, I'm going to do this. It doesn't always work out and he you know the way he handles those situations is really really good yeah as austin as you said it, it's i don't think it's the alan quartermain of the mm-hmm. books but i don't mm-hmm. think that's what the filmmakers were ever going for no they're going to they were going for the alan quartermain of the pulp yeah. serials <laughs> absolutely the old hollywood type uh and i'll tell you one thing right off the bat these movies they look great like they were shot in Zimbabwe and and as a consequence, you know, they don't feel like they were shot on the back lot. They feel like they were shot, you know, on location in, in you know, you just have some great scenery and some and just great backdrops for some of these scenes. 
you know, these are really well-made movies in, in a lot of ways, in not necessarily in every way, but in some. It does some things very, very well. It does. <laughs> now, in your book, you talk about some of the controversy of shooting in Zimbabwe. I guess that they didn't, you know, like there was, there were issues with like paying extras and things like that. It's so funny because they do have some huge crowd scenes that's in that, that city in the opening of the, of the first film. Like there's a massive amount of people. Oh, yeah. Yes. The... They cut a lot of flack. A lot of they Canon was spending money. They built this big, beautiful, ancient city that out, out of nowhere. And they paid, they spent some money actually flying in journalists to visit the sets. You have various magazines and newspapers coming out to talk to Richard, uh, Richard Chamberlain and uh, Sharon Stone and see what's going on. But a lot of what these journals would press on is, you know, this, you know, you're, what do you, what's it like shooting with a mostly South African crew here in Zimbabwe? And what are you paying these people? Cause they're looking around and there are the, there's a scene in this movie with um, where, where, where there there's the cannibal tribe and they're being cooked in the pot, which we'll get to. Oh yeah. But you look and there's six, they had 1600 extras there that day. And these were all oh just goodness. people from local villages and they were paid $6, which included them having to to bring their own lunch per day. Oh my god! Which was not a not a good like that was a fraction of what you would have made. Oh yeah, shooting it somewhere else or especially in the United States, but food would have been provided and Canon kind of cut corners there too. But it led to this kind of magical thing, and you see in a lot of old behind the scenes photos where you have this village, this 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 city, this amazing Tongala that they that they built a very cool set beautiful downtown Tongala <laughs> yeah and you've got this huge sort of village like pop-up village that's around it with tents and like quickly built structures for just to support the the locals the extras that they were bringing in day after day after day so you had restaurants and like food carts that were being set up just to serve this almost 2,000 people that were were there on some days to appear as background extras. Oh, that's fascinating. <laughs> yeah, there was a whole there was a whole local economy that just cropped up there for six months <laughs> around is, the shooting of these two movies. That is amazing. Uh, we also want to mention that it, it, you know it's got a pretty great score from Jerry Goldsmith. I mean, one of the you know, like a top oh, yeah. tier, you know, one of the top tier composers in Hollywood. And you know, I mean, Star Trek: The Motion Picture, and you know, The Black Hole, and, and uh, you know, the list goes on and on, um, you know, and it's a terrific score. Like it's a terrific, like that, that, that Alan Quartermain fanfare is really, really, you know, it, it'll get you on your feet. It'll get the crowd on their feet, you know, like it's, it's really good. It is. And if you like it, you'll really like the second movie because they use the theme song over, over and over and over oh again. Oh my and- goodness. Yes. Oh yeah. No, they, you hear that, 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 a couple of bars over and over again. Um, the film updates the novel. The novel was set in uh, in 1880, I believe. Uh, a couple of years. It was set a couple of years before its initial publication. And th- this film updates it from the late 19th century to sometime in the 1910s, right around the beginning of the First World War, which, of course, allowed them to make the Germans the villains, much as they were in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mm-hmm. And and the the lead German played by Herbert Herbert Lom is just oh my god he's the most stereotypical German I've ever seen I mean he's got one of his soldiers carrying around a gramophone playing Wagner he's 
he's literally chomping on knockwurst. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he is almost. Uh, gosh, why am I blanking on the name of the old variety comedy series? Yeah, he runs with someone from like Hogan's Heroes or Laughing. Laughing, sure. Oh yeah, totally. Yes. Yes. Oh no, he. No one in this movie was told to to dial it down. No, no, and no one, no one does. <laughs> uh, we open with a scene in which Jesse Houston, that's the Sharon Stone character, her father is being forced to translate a map, a map in the form of a statue uh, that will lead to the legendary mines of King Solomon. Uh, Houston's assistant tries to flee from the scene, uh, and he gets impaled on this trap that swings down from the ceiling and impales a person on spikes. And the first thing I thought to myself was, who would have that in their place of business? Like, why would you need that? My goodness. <laughs> it's a very odd security measure. <laughs> I, I, I actually have never thought of that. Now I'm really concerned. Why, <laughs> why is that there? But I will say that it's uh, what, what I really enjoyed is that this movie does just start, you know, in the middle of yes. the action, right? There is no wind up. You are just dropped straight into the middle of this thing. And it takes a little bit before we get to our hero. But um you know, as opposed to, you know, like a high road to China or something where it, it feels like you're really taking a while to get or, in Or to be honest, Rob, Alan Quartermain in The Lost City of Gold. Wow, that too, yes. <laughs> but but King Solomon's Mines, which we're talking about now, yeah, it gets right into the action. Now, I, I, I want to say that, you know, as we as we head into the city, um, as beautiful downtown Tongola, as as Quartermain describes it, uh, and, and we talk, the set is really impressive. And it's really something. But what we're going to get into, and we might as well sort of deal with it head on, is uh, in both of these movies, we see, we've talked about movies before where there are some unfortunate, uh, kind of outdated racist attitudes on display towards indigenous characters. And truth be told, that is true here as well. Indeed. These, uh, and then the use of some of the language, some of the slurs they yeah. use is, is even, I think, even less forgivable than the portrayals because they're, yeah, yeah not, not exactly any sensitivity here uh, on the part of anyone involved. And I think uh, in addition to it being the time period when they made this movie, uh, we talked about this in other series, the source material itself couldn't have helped. No. Um, just because it was written in an even less enlightened time than the mid 80s. Yeah. Well, the, the, it was the mid 1880s at that, you know, it really is when the book. Yeah, I guess the 1980s. Is, yeah. I mean, you're talking about 100. Yeah, this 100 movie is made 100 years after the novel was published. Uh, it was there was 100 years between. Yeah. And, and, you know, listen, uh, H. Ryder Haggard, there's a lot of he's a very important author in terms of the development of adventure fiction, but at the same time, there, there are racist attitudes. There are colonialist attitudes very much on display in his writing. Uh, and it is kind of baked in. And it's the sort of thing where if, if your sensitivities are, are not, you know, kind of, it's like, yeah, I, I don't want to engage in that. I can appreciate that because the, in this movie, and you know, again, it's just sort of baked in from the source material and truth be told, some of the choices they made in making the movie didn't help. So it's just, it, it, it it's there and we can't ignore it. Uh, but at the same, we just have to sort of acknowledge it and say, yeah, that's, uh, you know, I don't know if you could make, truthfully, I'm not sure if you could make a King Solomon's Minds or a, or a, a H. Ryder Haggard adaptation that didn't have those. I think Michael Crichton might have had the right idea where it's like, we're going to take the concept, but I'm going to do something new where I don't have to be beholden to some of those attitudes in the adaptation. 
with Congo is the is the the novel and subsequent movie that uh, that he did that is kind of a a, a variation on King Kong the King Solomon's Mines concept, but with a thousand percent more Delroy Lindo, which is always good. more Delroy Lindo, more uh, super gorillas. God, I love some super gorillas. Oh, the myth of the killer ape is true, Chris. <laughs> um, I mean. Yeah, you know, for example, what we're talking about, there's a scene where Jesse is kind of walking through Tongola and, you know, she's being sized up by a group of natives and Quatermain says, well, they're just grocery shopping, you know, because they're cannibals. And that's going to come back again. That is actually a it setup is. to be paid off, which you and which is uh, not not the best. But you also get into some stuff here where I think this is, uh, you know, we haven't seen a lot of people trying to tackle um, action sequences or stunts from India uh, from Raiders of the Lost Ark, but they start to actually do some of that because it's there's been enough time, oh, yeah. I guess, for them to have uh, been able to do a little more uh, direct. Uh, well, we have echoes. a sequence where Jesse is kidnapped and rolled up in a rug that feels like a smaller scale yeah. version of the basket scene from Raiders. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. Uh, the the problem with Jesse, by the way, is that she's so annoyingly strident. She's so sure of herself, but without anything to back it up. I honestly, I feel like as I, I like Sharon Stone as an actress, she's not well served by the scripts for these movies. No, no. And she is somebody who she always wanted to be a comic actress too. That was where she kind of wanted to go. And she, this was probably one of her better chances at breaking on something with a comic comic tone. But of course this didn't really break her career. That would be basic instinct. And that kind of put her into a very different career path um, kind of steered her away from comedy. So I, I I feel kind of bad for her that this wasn't, she didn't have a funnier script to, or a, funnier lines to deliver or, or get to handle more of the comedy in this because, it, I mean, it could have taken her career a different way or more in the direction I think that she, I feel like she wanted at that point. She could have done multiple Police Academy movies <laughs> instead of just the one. <laughs> also written by Gene Quintano, I have to throw in, uh, Police Academy 4, Citizens on Patrol, which does feature Sharon Stone also. So it's, you know, time's a flat circle. Everything's all connected. Um, She's brought up. So she's in the rug. She's brought up onto the roof where the villains are kind of hanging out. Uh, the 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 German played by Herbert Long, Bachner, and uh, and and Degati played by, by uh, John Rhys Davies. And she's unrolled from the carpet. And she rolls right off the other side of the roof. And I just had a moment where I'm like, oh, these are incompetent villains. Like, they, this is how we are. Like, we're, we're into the incompetent villain thing where it's like they get her and then they immediately lose her. <laughs> yeah, she slips away really easily here. It's, yeah, a lot of luck is on her side in this in this film. Yeah, this is, this is one where I kind of don't, I, I'm like... I just like the bit. It's funny. <laughs> and I get to see Sharon Stone roll off a roof. So I'm just, I'm all, I'm on board. <laughs> Quartermain and Jesse end up in the antiquities shop from the opening sequence where they get information about her father and they find the dead assistant from in, in an Egyptian sarcophagus, the guy who was impaled on the spikes. Uh, and this is one of the first of many bits with dynamite. These movies love dynamite the way Indiana Jones loves a whip. And especially people grabbing sticks of dynamite, holding them up and shouting, I've got it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's fantastic. You mentioned earlier, I, I, I just 
going back a second, they, you mentioned that the movie was released on what was the hundredth anniversary of? It was the hundredth anniversary mm-hmm. of the novel. So the novel is eighteen eighty five, and this was nineteen eighty five. Something I love is in some of the Mark Cannon marketing materials, they would mention that this is the movie that people have been waiting one hundred years for, or audiences have been waiting one hundred years for, and they tried That's to amazing. use that as a you know as as a marketing point. But it just strikes me as funny because I don't think people in 1885 were reading the novel and thinking, I can't wait to see this as a movie. Um, I, I think that would have been a little. I can't wait for them to invent movies <laughs> so we could see this. It, it, talking pictures, moving pictures. If they would just invent that, this would make a great one. <laughs> <laughs> and it ignores that there were, this is the fifth one of these. They weren't waiting that long to see it as a movie. It's, there's so much wrong about that marketing tag. But, you know, it it, it worked because the movie did well. So, you know, God bless them. You know, God bless you, Golan and Globus. You know, never one to sh- don't let the truth get in front of a good marketing slogan. <laughs> no, no, never. Um, I love some of the, the there's a chase that happens through the, the, the streets of Tagala. I love some of the moves that Quartermain pulls during this chase. Like there's one bit where he's swinging on what looks like uneven bars, like he's Mary Lou Retton. Uh, he crashes through the skylight into the antiquity shop like he's Batman. Not the last time he'll crash through a skylight like Batman. Um, it's, I mean, this is a movie that's sort of going for broke in terms of the action as as much as they had the capability of doing it. Mm-hmm. And J. Lee Thompson's a great director for that. He was very talented with with his actions, going all the way back to Guns and Navarone. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, one hundred percent. He, he, and, and this was in the later part of his career when he was doing a lot of work for Canon, in particular. Uh, you know, he didn't direct the second one of these because he he went off and and did a, a Charles Bronson movie because that was the guy that Charles Bronson really really liked working with because he got him home on time. Mm-hmm. They were good buddies, <laughs> <laughs> and he only needed two takes, as in uh, compared to Michael Winter's three takes that he needed for all his movies. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You can if you can shave off a take, that's a reason to dump winners if you needed another mm-hmm. one mm-hmm. yeah bronson will throw you to the wolves <laughs> and with Quatermain's, uh you know the the action that you're talking about which it feels like is more so than indiana jones at least in that first movie but it gives uh it, you know not to go too far afield but it feels very errol flynn right like it's there's like something like the adventures of robin hood uh about it where it's so classic, I, I even though it's, you know, at the time, modern and, and a bit over the top as well. But um, I don't know. It just feels classic Hollywood. Too. It is. I, I agree 100 percent. That's a great observation. He's a very Flynn like character. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, this all the other thing about this movie that I noticed. Uh, this movie has a lot of what I would call people pulling faces, <laughs> broad, <laughs> exaggerated expressions. And sometimes undercutting what might otherwise be good line. There's a line, there's a scene where Bachner is interrogating Professor Houston. And he says, I only have two words to say to you, talk or die. And Houston responds by saying, that's three words. And it's a good line, but it's undercut by like this super exaggerated face that Herbert Long makes afterwards. Like, like something out of like a, like an Inspector Gadget cartoon or something like that. The movie is full of people like highly, highly exaggerated facial expressions. (laughs) Chris, you can't have a reaction shot without action. And I think that they're just taking that to heart. Well, you're right. You're you know, how are people going to know it's funny if you don't if you don't show them it's funny? (laughs) More mugging, more mugging. I'm I'm imagining that being shouted through a megaphone on on the set of this film. Uh, 
basically the movie is a prolonged chase between two groups, Quartermain Houston and Quartermain's friend Mbappo, played by South African actor Ken Grampau, and Dugati Bachner and the Germans. Uh, this is a substantial change from the novel in which there's simply a single expedition going in search of the mines. Uh, and again, I think that was just done, that was done to make it more like Indiana Jones, where you have two parties chasing after the object of the quest. One of them happened to be full of Germans. So there you go. Yeah. I mean, it just makes sense. Uh, it gives you something to cut cross cut between uh, the stories and then, you know, a little tension as the audience will know that the the bad guys are coming up. Um, it actually, you know, it, it, it works in this movie the way that they do it. It totally does. Um, and there's a great, there's a great extended train sequence where, uh, you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of action that happens in and around this moving train. Um, there's, like there's some good stunts. There's there's a bit where Quartermain falls between the train cars that actually made me say I actually stopped and said out loud, "Oh shit!" Like it really is like, "Oh shit!" That then now under the train, he grabs a chain and is dragged behind the train. Now I don't need to tell you guys what that reminded me of. You know, it's 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 you know, it, it is not dissimilar to a scene, a very famous scene from Raiders of the Lost Ark. No, no, not at all. They, <laughs> I, I there it, again, it's another one of these moments in this movie that there, there's a part of me that wants to be less cynical and think, oh, this is not just an Indiana Jones knockoff. This is because Golden Globus and Jaylee Thompson, all, all these people saw all these same movies that Spielberg and Lucas and Zemeckis saw and were inspired by. But then you see things like the Sharon Stone being rolled up in a rug and uh, Richard Chamberlain <laughs> being pulled behind a train. And you think, OK, they definitely saw Raiders and they definitely thought, let's let's do that, too. Let's let's put that in here. Yeah. That's what people want to see. <laughs> what, what I love is that even when you're in that mode of, oh, let's put in some signifiers and, and give the audience what they want. Uh, you can't help but wind up with a movie that also has a taxidermied mummy cat uh, masquerading as a mummy <laughs> child. And so it's like it, it it can't help being King Solomon's minds, even though at times it really does want to, you know, signify Raiders as well. I was going to say that I, I you're, first of all, A, that's absolutely true. B, I was going to say that I love the fact that not only is he dragged behind the, tr the train, but he eventually stands up and uses the train tracks uh, uh, like they were skis. It's <laughs> amazing. It is derivative, but I, my God, it is amazing. <laughs> no, Harrison Ford did not ski. Not that I remember. <laughs> no. Not even in not even in Temple of Doom where they they land on the snow. No, absolutely not. Not in the most recent one. There was something about the mid '80s because this this also uh, gave me, and I know it's it's not. This, these have nothing, but it, it felt like the zeitgeist of like Teen Wolf surfing on top of the van. It just feels like a very '80s thing. Yes. Um, even though this movie is not set in the 1980s, um, uh, there is a strange moment on the train where one of the German soldiers seems like he is planning to sexually assault Jesse and he, Jesse's there with her father and there's this German soldier and then and then he says I was talking to your father but I'm not fussy 
what? Like that's that is one of those moments where I just said, wait, wait, wait what is happening? <laughs> or like this is like there there's some moments that are so like that feel like, oh, this is from a, like a a rollicking, you know, adventure film. And there's other moments that are so strange. I don't even know. Like, I don't even know how they made them to the movie. There's there's a scene when when you guys I'll be listening when you when you talk about Firewalker, but is very similar to <laughs> where uh it kind of a I, I would say just like someone being saved from being assaulted in the same way at the last minute is played right. for humor in a way that really, really falls flat and is a very weird, uh, <laughs> weird tonal shift in a uh, comic action scene. Otherwise, what is a comic action scene? Strange. That's it's, it's a strange that's a strange pattern. And and here, while the it's played as Alan heroically rescuing her. It's if I'm not mistaken, it's not too long after this where Alan being a noble defender of women is somewhat undercut when the uh what the breasts of Sheba are mentioned and he makes a grabby grabby motion with his hands. I was like, this, <laughs> Lord, oh my god. <laughs> it seems out of character like like forget the era and all that. It, it it felt a little out of character with the, you know, the the quatermain that they'd established in the movie um yeah as well as being you know just a little you know a little cringy 1980s but um but it was it was not too long after this the breasts of sheba which is the two mountains uh beyond which the mines are that is uh in the novel that is not an invention of the film it's found in in haggard's novel and it's actually the 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 name of two mountains in south africa in southern africa so it's uh, now granted. I don't think Quartermain in the novel went to grabby had a grabby grabby thing. Like he didn't. He, H. Ryder Haggard didn't didn't write him as doing a grabby grabby motion. Uh, that was added for the film. I would love to read that sentence if it did exist. Uh, like, how would you describe it? Just from like a technical writing standpoint, like it, it, it fascinates me. And we can't. I mean, we we can't be sure he wasn't making a grabby grabby motion as he was like typing that out or writing it into his notebook or yeah. something. That is absolutely true. I'm sure that was probably his intent. <laughs> Um, there is a scene I want to I want to mention because I think it was it's one of the it's 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 a curious action beat because it's it's a good action beat but it's also ridiculous and that kind of sums up this movie in that there's a scene where Quartermain and Jesse are in a biplane and they go head to head against the German plane and it's complicated by the fact that Quartermain is hanging on to the wing and Jesse doesn't know how to fly and frequently closes her eyes it's it's a strange and yet it's very it's it's highly entertaining. It, it the it's it's so entertaining that it almost makes up for how bad the the blue screen green screen uh, job is oh during that goodness. scene. As good as a lot of the sets and the locations they're shooting on are, as good as a lot of the action is, that that green screen job is as bad, equally as bad. <laughs> Oh yeah, and there's a there's a fair amount of it uh, in between both of these films. There is a sequence of increasingly bizarre in- encounters with indigenous tribes. Uh, you know, once they are back on the ground. Uh, oh, they also I should mention that Mbavo kind of disappears. Uh, like he he he'll show up again later, but there's sort of an awkward thing where it's like he just kind of leaves the movie for a while. Uh, which is odd because of what what comes later and the and the revelations that come later, but. 
there's a scene where they're the cannibals that they encountered in the city. They run into them again and they attempt to cook Quartermain and Jesse in a giant pot that is straight out of the 1960s Batman TV series. I swear to God, I think that was a cliffhanger, you know, like the bookworm had him in a, had him in a giant pot of something. Oh yeah. And I love that you, they're, they have like whole cabbages floating in there with him. It, it, it looks like it looks like Bugs Bunny being, you know, yes. being ready to be cooked and eaten. It, yeah, yeah. It's and and again, this is the you mentioned this scene earlier. This is where you have an incredibly impressive amount of extras in this sequence. Like this is not five guys. It's like this is this is a pretty significant scene that they put together and it gives it a great look like that. And the, and the, and the, the African locations give it a sense of authenticity. Yeah. The extras, the tribe members in that scene stretches, I mean, far into the horizon. And that's, that was people that was just people they filled the frame with, which is incredible. Yeah. This this was not a film where they did CGI, you know, crowd extensions, A, because CGI was in its infancy, and B, because Canon Films was not using CGI even when it was in its infancy. No, no. And it was, they, like I said, they they brought those people in, and they paid them six bucks to bring their own lunch and work for the day. <laughs> yeah. My goodness. Um, yeah, we, we, they, Jesse and Quartermain escape by rocking the pot back and forth until it topples over. And what I think is hysterical is the tribe surprised when it turns over, like, like they keep, like the pots, it's rocking for a while. And then like, what do they think was going to happen? Like it's, they, they pour out and it goes down the, the Jesse and, and Quartermain have their first kiss, which seems to be out of nowhere because they really didn't develop the romance much, but you know, Hey, you know, it's Richard Chamberlain and Sharon Stone. So there you go. That's, I guess, all you need. <laughs> two, two good-looking action uh, protagonists. That's that's usually all it takes. Uh, there's a friendly tribe who lives up in the trees and uh, also seems to have invented the curling iron, judging by Sharon Stone's hair. Yeah, and the shirt, uh, the or the clothes when they get uh, washed and they're, like, dangled around the trees. Because everything is, and what, they're, they're, they're upside down too, right? They're um, upside down because they want to change their perspective on the world. Yeah. Um, there, there's something, you know, and look, there's, you know, some tropes going on here that has already been discussed. But there's something like it is fun and a little bit. Um, it is there is a general, a gener- genuine sense of wonder in this little yes. little moment in the film. Um, you know, whatever else might be going on. Indeed, there is. No, they 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 definitely they definitely have that moment where it's like, oh, this is this is really nice. Um, finally, they encounter the Kukana tribe that lives near the mine and is ruled by the evil priestess Gagulia. And she hangs Quartermain upside down over a pit of crocodiles, which was apparently. You know, they did that stunt for real with with Richard Chamberlain's stunt person. And that was apparently quite an ordeal. Yes. Yeah. The the conditions of this stunt are one of my favorite things about this movie. His stuntman was basically dangled. They, they took these two like two ropes, basically two cables and strung them around to very tall trees and hung him upside down. And on each side of these cables were the just basically local hired strong guys to kind of pull it on both sides to raise and lower him. And they had actual crocodiles. They had many, many crocodiles. No. Yeah. No. Wow. <laughs> oh, look at uh, them snappers. Yeah. 
to get them to bite, they wanted these crocodiles not to be just laying in the sun. Like I, I suppose that they would normally do. They want them biting at him and crocodiles aren't an easy animal to train. I don't think so to get, I've had very little success (laughs) to get them to do that. Richard Chamberlain's poor, poor stunt devil was basically slathered with meat. Uh, with oh meat byproducts, entrails of all sorts of different animals. Like, oh, I call God. it in the book, I call it uh, chum jelly. <laughs> Just head to toe in it. I don't care what your background is. You avoid the chum jelly. <laughs> Oh my goodness. I just, just the smell, the heat being upside down, being uncomfortable and having basically a few guys who are being paid six bucks a day to raise and lower you over these, these crocodiles that the chum jelly has spurred them into this kind of like feeding hungry. They, they, they want to eat you at that point. They have been made to want to really want to eat you in a way that a normal crocodile would not necessarily be that aggressive you got a whole pack of very aggressive and and so here's how long it took it took three hours to get all the coverage they needed no. so this poor guy was no uh-huh. this poor guy was upside down every once in a while they couldn't they couldn't take him down every once in a while they they'd kind of pull him away so he could get a little the blood out of his head and back down to the rest of his body so here's the thing too so there there were there were two things that could go wrong during this stunt one was well, one is the crocodiles. Yes, one is the crocodiles. So they <laughs> they had snipers. What off like off camera, snipers off camera, ready to shoot the crocodiles if this guy fell or was accidentally dropped. Wow! But that was assuming the fall, you know, a ten to ten to twenty foot drop straight down onto your head didn't kill you <laughs> before right. the crocodiles could eat you. Right. So, well, that is that is a problem there. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, it, it was very close to, yeah. If, if one of several things went wrong, it would have been one of probably the most gruesome movie accidents, most gruesome oh and most, God. I'm sure most of uh, like easily avoidable um, oh, by any sensible mind, like mind working on this set at that time. And this is what you're talking about, where the story behind some of these canon films is even more entertaining and bizarre than the stories of the, the, the actual films themselves. I mean, my God, it's it's chum jelly summer on the, the set of King Solomon's Minds. Yeah. Oh, oh, what a what a just everything about that. I, I there are a few people that I feel more badly for involved in a canon movie than Richard Chamberlain stunt double for those three hours. Oh my God. Um, that is, that is madness. That, that, could, just that could almost be a movie in and of itself. It's just the real time three hours. You're with that guy dangling and like going in and out of his mind. Yeah. If, if, if Canon hadn't thrown all of their outtakes and extra footage from all their films in dumpsters, just to save on storage costs that I'm sure there's that would make a great documentary. Somebody could cut down just the, that, <laughs> that afternoon of filming into something that'd be riveting. Honestly, Rob, I think I want to do it as a one man show for the Hollywood fringe theater <laughs> festival. You know, just I'm me there. upside down for, for I'm three there. hours. I'll do Slathered your hair. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be a crocodile. Just give me the costume. I'll be, down, I'll be on stage below you the whole time. I'll do it. Amazing. Uh, now, Quartermain is rescued. I can't say for his stunt double, my God, but Quartermain in the movie is rescued by the reappearance of Mbafo, who is, guess what? 
he is the rebel. He is the exiled king of the tribe, and that uh, the the high priestess Gabagool has has um, you know has has usurped him, uh, and it's all very highly convenient. <laughs> now, I want to talk about this because it's this is a case of them taking something in the novel and making it a coincidence. Because in the book, Mbafo is the lost king of this tribe. But instead of being just Quartmain's buddy who decides to go along with them on the on the party, he's this mysterious figure who joins the party after he hears of their intended destination. So in the book, the whole thing feels less coincidental and random. Here it just feels like, hey, guess what? We happen to run across the tribe that I'm the lost, I'm the lost exiled king of. Well, isn't that great? (laughs) It's a very, very fortunate deus ex machina there. It is. But the mines are real. Don't worry, folks. We're getting to the mines. The mines are real. Uh, Gabagool escapes into the mines with Jesse, and she intends to drop Jesse into the volcano that's underneath the mines. And Quartermain and Mbappo follow as the Germans attack the village. Bachner is the worst leader. He ends up just killing a bunch of his own guys for reasons passing understanding. Uh, and then he turns on Degati, and I had a moment where I'm like, oh, what an ignominious end for Mirror Universe Sala, but thankfully he keeps popping up again like he's Michael Myers. I, I love seeing uh, Jonathan Rice davies in this in this movie and watching it. During the filming of this movie, there was, there was a period where there was unprecedented rain, unexpected rain, and it flooded the sets, and it shut down production for quite a while. I hope they got the guy down from the Crocs. <laughs> <laughs> he got to go out and jump on a like private plane and he was going to go take a little African African vacation for a weekend. Sure. And his plane, as it was taken off, his little Cessna hit a tree and wrecked and nobody was killed. Oh my God. But he mangled his leg and it required five surgeries, I believe one after another um, hospital stay. So during the course of when finishing the movie, he wanted to come back. He was in a local hospital but when he came back, Jay Lee Thompson actually had taken all of his scenes that he had yet to film and changed it all so that he could be sitting for some reason. He's always sitting in this movie or being or um, shot in a way that it's it's tight enough that you can see that he's not sitting or you can't see that. Well, he now is he's sitting, sitting. So but yeah, it, throughout the film, he could not walk through most of the making of, of this movie. So you can kind of tell when you actually see his full body that that was shot early. And <laughs> anywhere crazy. the rest of the movie, you can't see the rest of his body. It's because he's got a very, very gruesome leg injury. Oh, my God. And yeah. it wasn't even from the crocodiles. It was a completely separate thing. This movie's <laughs> crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the yeah. making of this is is just bonkers. Uh, it, we, go, we go into the mines. And, and this is a moment I want to point out. There's this surreal moment where all the previous queens of the tribe, going back to the legendary Queen of Sheba, are perfectly preserved in crystal. It is so weird. It's like, it's, it's, but it's less weird the fact that, again, all of the queens are white. <laughs> they're, what? Their subjects, you'll notice, aren't white. <laughs> I, in fact, did notice that. Yes. In fact, I, I did. Uh, and and it's just, it's a very strange choice. Um, like for, for a, a, you know, again, Mbappo is, is, is the rightful king. He's black. Uh, I don't know why all the queens that are encased in, in, in how you do that. I mean, how they, they were able to, to encase their queens in crystal to keep them perfectly preserved. 
uh, that is that is unexplained. But uh, you know, it's uh, you know, it's it's. I thought it was such a strange choice. It's got to be the same technology they used to trap Matilda May and Crystal in the beginning of Life Force and shoot her across the galaxy. Oh, totally. Oh, yeah, <laughs> sure. There you go. Uh, we also get an appearance from a spider, a giant spider that is very similar to the one from the end of Ator the Fighting Eagle, one of our favorite movies here at Get Me Another. Uh, it, in that it, some for me who hates spiders, am not remotely bothered by it because it doesn't look even close to real. Uh, and, and I thought it was also we, we we have a funny moment where quarter the, like you get into the mine's treasure room and it isn't like uncut diamonds or other precious stones, but like cut gems and jewelry. It's like, oh, well, they, they were clearly, they weren't just like mining things. They were clearly in the jewelry business. They were fashioning these things into, into crowns and other things that you could take uh, and cutting the gems as well. Yeah, it's, it's more like King Solomon's like merchandise warehouse than his mind. It is. It's, <laughs> there's always a little shop at the end. That's the, that's the, anywhere you go, there's always a little shop at the end. And, and King Solomon's mines uh, is no different. Yeah, you're going to like the way you look. King Solomon's mines. <laughs> King Solomon's men's <laughs> warehouse. Um, Bachner gets eaten by a hippo, which is kind of great, and uh, and Gabagool throws herself into the underground volcano, uh, which is also which is also pretty great. Um, and you know you have a final showdown with Degati with uh, Quartermain and Degati. Uh, in and the mines, and the volcano seals off the mines forever because, guys, the diamonds belong to the mount after all. And do the do the uh, fancy amulets and jewels and crowns and everything? They also belong to the mountain. They also belong to the mountain. Yeah, <laughs> except for the two that that Quartermain and Jesse sneak out. Uh, which you know, hey, the, hey, you know what? I would have done the same thing. I would I would have grabbed a, a stone or two and put it in my pocket. Because if I snuck them out, though, I might have waited uh, until I was a little further from all of the people who said don't take anything uh, before I whipped them out of my pocket. Yeah, instead um, of just right outside the gates, <laughs> just like in full view. But I mean, you know, in in many ways, that is that is. In this movie, the the character's view of them. It's nice too that that both both he and Jesse took took uh, something from the mine. Yes, I agree. I agree. It's not. It's it's uh, that it, it's the two of them. Uh, I I actually think that is uh, really really good. And King Solomon's Mines did pretty well at the box office in 1985, opening at number one. It brought around 15 million dollars, uh, which is a good thing because after apparently they finished production, there was a two week break, and the production then started on the sequel, Alan Quatermain and the Lost City of Gold. Alan Quartermain, the master of adventure, has teamed up with the most unlikely partner. Eric is about 6,000 miles that way. To pursue the dream of a lifetime. It's dangerous and it's crazy. And it's what I've got to do. Gold streets of it. They're searching for the long lost treasure of an ancient civilization. warriors. The odds are against them, and that's the way they like it. Richard
Richard Chamberlain, Sharon Stone, and James Earl Jones in the adventure movie of the year, Alan Quartermain and the Lost City of Gold. If 1985's King Solomon's Mines was loosely based on the H. Ryder Haggard novel, then Alan Quartermain and the Lost City of Gold was really loosely based on Haggard's novel entitled Alan Quartermain. And I mean, you know, loosely like, like it's don't, don't go out. This is not a bathrobe you can wear in public. Like it's really loose and it's, it's barely hanging on in terms of an adaptation. Uh, Barely hanging on like Quartermain's shirt in this movie, actually. So there you go. Uh, that is true. Uh, J. Lee Thompson replaced in the director's chair by Gary Nelson, who previously directed a number of Disney films, including The Black Hole, a movie we talked about in our Get Me Another Star Wars series. Uh, as I mentioned before, Thompson had to go and direct another Charles Bronson picture. In this case, it was Murphy's Law. Uh, and again, we have the inestimable Gene Quintano writing the script, uh, I believe this time with an uncredited Lee Reynolds. Uh, although, you know, it, I, I, that's what I've seen on the Internet is that he also it was co-wrote it, but he's not credited in the film. Right. Right. A lot of times uh, act, people would people would work on a script for canon and the, the pay would come under the table. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. There you have it. Uh, both Richard Chamberlain and Sharon Stone returned for the sequel, this time joined by James Earl Jones. Henry Silva, Robert Donner, and Cassandra Peterson. The first thing I noticed at the beginning of this movie, no canon logo at the beginning. Like the first, like King Solomon's Minds has that classic canon logo at the beginning with the dun dun, like that, the, the, the little canon overture. Not here. It's clearly a canon film. It says it at the top, but there's no canon logo. No. This is a movie that you'll notice a lot of, especially if you watch it back to back with King Solomon's Minds. This was a movie that, was supposed to come out really quickly afterwards and got delayed for various reasons. But if you watch them together now, you'll notice a lot of kind of steps down. And I think, I think Jay Lee did kind of play a, a dirty trick with this, with this production because these two movies were kind of budgeted together. They had this money that was right. going to go, not just to do, this movie and then this money goes to this movie. This is all one production. The actors are being paid kind of the slums on together. A lot of the crew members, a lot of the people working behind the camera and Jay Lee, you spent all that money (laughs) (laughs) and then got out of town, which is kind of what happened there. So there are two, there are two, yeah, two reasons for why this movie looks, feels everything about it is cheaper than the one that came before, even though they were shot only two weeks apart the first one being, yeah, like Jay Lee blew the blew the blew the budget and then got out of town. And this the second reason being that the first movie, because of rains, because of unexpected flooding, was delayed for weeks in the middle. And Canon Canon wasn't a company to push entire schedules back. No. If they had to take three weeks off because their set was flooded. That three weeks just came out of the pre-production time that was allotted for the next movie. So normally there would have been about two months in between there. And because all the actors were just sitting in their hotels while they waited for the, you know, for for Tangala to dry out in the sun, they (laughs) they just there was no time. There was no time to really do much pre-production. So Gary Nelson got out there and he had two, you know, basically two weeks to 
do all the scouting for locations for this movie in a country that not only he had not really spent any time in before, but also was not a well-trod location for movies to be shot in there. So there, there were a lot of things kind of stacked against it from the get go. So this movie looks, Oh wow. It looks much cheaper than King yeah. Solomon's yeah. Mines. I mean, it's still, they shot, I mean, it's still shot in Africa. It's not like they're doing, you know, Calabasas for, for South Africa. Like it's clearly, you know, you have uh, Victoria Falls in the, in the back. Like there's, there are, it, there are things, the locations look good, but it's definitely not, uh, not at the same level. Um, yeah. You do wind up with a lost city of gold who throughout this movie movie, everyone talks about as having streets paved with gold. <laughs> and when you get there, maybe there's not so much gold to go around at that point in the filming. Yes. Yeah. It's, it, they, they, it's called the lost city of gold, but I think they actually meant the lost city of gravel. Yes. <laughs> Well, that's because uh, what the 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 high pro- Aegon has been using it all. He's been he's been you know turning. He's got that big pot of uh, he's taken all the streets and melted them down into that big like gold pot that's below the 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 temple room. We'll we'll get to it more, that's, but I, I feel right, like there might right. be some textual thing for why there's there's not so much gold in the lost city of gold. You're uh, yeah, absolutely right about that. What what is less explainable is why uh, Alan is skeet shooting uh, with with a handgun at the beginning. Like the first time we see Alan yeah. Quartermain, he's ske- you know, and and he's like got this setup. I'm like, dude, you took a diamond at the end of the last movie. You can't buy a real skeet shooting setup. Like you can't afford that with the diamond that you stole. No, time to shoot tomatoes. Like you have to have kids with a cart. Yeah, and like <laughs> tomatoes and fruit. Yeah. It's like kids on a cart, like throwing them into the air and he's shooting them with a handgun. <laughs> it's so <laughs> silly, <laughs> uh, which I love. I mean, don't get me wrong. Um, but soon as the movie opens, Quartermain and Jesse are getting ready to return to America for their wedding. But the sudden return of a friend of, uh, of Alan's who disappeared on an expedition with Alan's brother sets him on a course to find the lost city of gold. I have to say there's no hint of a brother whatsoever in the first film, which they knew they were making two. They couldn't have done a Superman two thing where you set up at the beginning. He's looking at a picture of his brother at the beginning part or something where you set that up the way they, they set up the three Kryptonian supervillains. Come on, Quintano get with the program. Yeah. I, I, I feel this, you have a little bit of the back to the future too retconning in this one. It's like, uh, you get the, <sighs> the Quatermain not liking the, the, the suit to have to go to America. You get the brother, it, you get all these little things. Don't fence him. Don't in. call him chicken, Rob. Don't call him chicken. Um, but you know, with all of this though, I have to get, give a, a credit to the direction is, you know, for all of the issues, uh, budgetary and otherwise, that there might be with this, uh, you get some really nice shots throughout. And just because we're here at the beginning, uh, when that old friend is, you know, getting chased and making his way to Alan, um, you know, like there's this shot where he is up on a branch hiding in a tree and the camera's kind of shooting down. And then down below on the ground, you see the uh, the folks who are after him looking around for him. I mean, there's just little things like that, that, um, you know, 
you're not having to necessarily spend a lot of money, but it's just thoughtful, well, you know, well constructed, uh, you know, framing and things. And it's, it actually makes, uh, it, it feels like they're off, he's often doing more, uh, than, you know, making a better movie than maybe the, uh, the, the budget would have had him. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I thought, you know, he directed the black hole, which I think is a yeah. terrific looking movie. Like that's a, you know, the, the, there's script issues with the black hole, but the, the movie like is shot really well. And so, I mean, the, that's why I was like, Oh wait, it's Gary yeah. Nelson. It's, you know, from like, from the black hole, it took me a minute to sort of, you know, put it all together. Um, the guy who escapes, and he's he's killed by one of the hooded men. He's pursuing. He carries a gold coin that has Phoenician writing on, it. and this is where we get uh, the 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 legend of the lost city of gold, uh, which oh boy uh, involves. Uh, I'll just say, and they say it in the movie, a lost white race. Oh boy, yeah. And um, before you jump too far ahead in your mind, if you're listening to this. And you're like, oh, I know how problematic that's going to be. You have no idea. Yes. You have no idea how problematic it's going to be. It's however problematic you think it is, it's going to get more and you won't believe it when we get there. Um, But let me let's say we'll come back to that in a little bit, because I want to talk. The beginning of this movie is almost the antithesis of King Solomon's Minds, where, where King Solomon's Minds avoids sort of the setup. Like you don't have a scene at the beginning of that movie where Jesse hires uh, Quartermain to go find her father. They're just they're just into it. You have the opening scene with the dad gets kidnapped, and then you're into it. Here we spend about a half an hour dicking around, presumably just to kill time. Uh, where we eat, we meet all the people. Jesse and Quartermain have a stupid argument about his clothes, and she changes. You know whether he's going to go after his brother. It's his brother. And then she absentmindedly almost drives off a cliff while talking to herself and changes her mind. And I'm just like, what's wrong with this woman? If you thought Jesse was annoying in the first film, she's full-blown exasperating here. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. She's she's somebody who, yeah, they, they her character is uh, annoying as she was supposed to be on set. If you watched Electric Boogaloo, there's some stories people tell in that documentary about how, how they did not have fun working with Sharon Stone. <laughs> I, I have seen Electric Boogaloo, and I that does I do recall that now that you say it that uh, that 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 it was not apparently a great working relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know these things happen, and it's so interesting too because early in the section, um, Jesse is the one who knows uh, who's reading the the coin, if I'm not mistaken, and she's yes. they actually made her smart and have purpose, and then it just it doesn't really come back much. Um, but it's so weird because they set up that it's going to potentially go in this one direction that that feels, frankly, a little bit more modern that they've, oh, we have two leads. Let's give some stuff to the second lead. Um, but then it doesn't really then they kind of backtrack on that pretty fast. Mm-hmm. Pretty, pretty fast. Yeah. I was, I, I, yeah, they, they almost they had an opportunity. You think they for a while that they were going to go go with it to kind of make. Make an Indiana Jones knockoff where Marion is the second lead throughout the whole film, just right. as strong, just as much as Indy. And yeah, it's it's very clear that no, she's going to be your damsel in distress, being tied to train tracks like she would have been in one of these old serials that they they were influenced <laughs> by. Yes. Oh, my favorite 
Oh, and my favorite thing about Jessie, though, for this whole movie is that she is going, she is in betrothed. She is going to marry <laughs> Alan. Does she call him Alan? No. No. <laughs> she calls him Quatermain, like it, like they're on the same soccer team or something, uh, going last oh. names only. And I, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> well, she, they, they, you know, again, they're out on the search for the brother. Uh, newsflash, they eventually find the brother. The brother refers to Alan as Q. Like by his, not even just his last name, the brother <laughs> refers to him just by his last initial. I'm like, dude, that's your last initial too. <laughs> well, they can't both be called Quatermain. It's like if I called my wife Mrs. I. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> <laughs> On this adventure, Alan and Jesse are joined by two new companions. The first is named Shwarma, uh, and he is a so-called holy man that is not only the most irritating character in the film, he is the most irritating character in any film. I hated him so much. Um, it, it's I'm not sure what purpose he serves, and everything is made exponentially worse by the fact that a very stereotypically Indian character being played by a white actor in brown face, it is rough. And it's, yeah, I mean, you can't, I'm not going to forgive brown face anywhere in a any film, but it's it's not even it's the least convincing makeup for it too. It's you can no. you can see where the the paint doesn't even cover large parts. It's it's awful. <laughs> yeah, it's it's and and the character's just so irritating. It's just like oh my god, it, it like the character's just nails on a chalkboard. I mean he's 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 terrible. Um, much better is James Earl Jones as Umslapagas, a warrior who carries. Uh, without fear, who carries a giant axe. And and what the hell is James Earl Jones doing in this movie? <laughs> Being awesome. <laughs> he yeah. is awesome because he's James Earl Jones. But like, this is like Darth Vader needs a summer home. Yeah, he's, you know, of course, a EGOT uh, winning actor. And yeah. he is, yeah, he wanted to take a vacation in Africa. That was the explanation he had. And oh, oh, it's it's like Christopher Plummer wanting to go to Rome, so he did Star Crash. Right, right. It's it's very much that situation. And there are points. I mean, he is one of the he he is he, he is a, a highlight of this movie. Oh, no question. But there are definitely there are definitely moments that I love in this film where you can kind of see where he's not having fun. <laughs> You can kind of read it in his yeah. face. Oh no, he's thinking about the house he's going to build. Yeah, he never he never phones he never phones it in or dials it in. But there are times where he's st- he's just standing silently, trying to, playing this sort of large, looming, silent character. But you can tell he's like he he can thinking in his head. He's dressed like Fred Flintstone and kind of uh, <laughs> feels a little ridiculous. Yeah. Now that you say it, it's it's absolutely yeah. He is kind of dressed. Uh, now the, the character Umslapagas uh, is is a pretty significant character in H. Ryder Haggard's original story. Not only does he accompany Quatermain on multiple adventures, but Haggard actually wrote a solo novel about the character telling his origin story. So he was he was like a, a significant character in the in the H. Ryder Haggard uh, uh, mythos. Uh, so I don't know if the idea was that he could come back for more. I don't uh, you know like he. Uh, 
I'm not sure, but it's like, oh, they got James Earl Jones. Man, that is uh, that is something. Indeed, indeed. That was a get for canon. Uh, the character travels with uh, a group of Ascari warriors who exist only for the purpose of dying. They have no other function. I'm not even sure they say anything. They just get killed off at various points so we can say how dangerous this journey is. And Jesse even calls them uh ashkari warriors there there's no name <laughs> it, it is it, they are yes they're star trek red ashkari sure. warrior one yeah. two yeah. like they Gar- just yeah. have numbers <laughs> that's it uh the group heads out into the wilderness we get a, a montage of walking uh of various scenery until we reach the walls of jaspora which appears to be like a pair of parallel walls that you have to walk through i didn't entirely get the geography of it but Honestly, it seems like everything's fine if you don't try to rip off the giant gold emblem from the wall. But that's exactly what Shwarma does because he sucks. <laughs> oh, yeah, he sucks. But we do get another uh, Indiana Jones style booby trap uh, with all of this, yeah. which is the real purpose of it all. Yes, easily avoidable if you're not, you know, uh, a, a, an idiot. Like, that's the thing. It's not like, oh, if I I have to know the different tiles to avoid the darts coming out of the wall. Here, it's just don't grab the giant gold thing off the wall, you idiot. (laughs) Yeah, you're you're not looking for certain pressurized plates or having to step on stones that spell out something in an ancient language. You just don't touch the thing that you shouldn't touch. But it does give you the best closing of the trap (laughs) (laughs) because uh trying to push the gold medallion back into place on the stone uh james Earl jones can't reach it no he cannot so how do you possibly close that chris alan you gotta shoot it back into place (laughs) because that's what americans do you know he's a british character but like he he feels like an american in this and he just shoots it back into place again when when we uh when i'm listening to your episode on firewalker You'll have to come back and talk about his character's shooting ability compared to to compared to Alan Quatermain's. Okay. Because it was Firewalker was also Lee J. Thompson. Yes. Or yeah, J. Yeah. Lee Thompson. Yeah, that was so, um, um, which this was not. I'm very curious. They all, mm-hmm. I, I know I saw all of these when I was a kid and it had, has been a while. I revisited these two, obviously this week before the show, uh, but I, Firewalker is still a few episodes out. So I, I haven't gone back to it yet. We'll do that, and we'll do River of Death uh, oh, later wow. on in the series, yeah. uh, which I don't think I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, Cannon was very big in the uh, Indiana Jones knockoff business when you when you put them all together like that. Well, you know, and 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 I mean to to start out with Treasure of the Four Crowns, mm-hmm. uh, you know, one of the great great movies of all time. I my God, it, it you know, <laughs> it's just amazing. Um, Anyway, they the, the the party goes on. They have a canoe trip down an undersea river, which takes a while. Um, there's a, oh, I shouldn't. There's a moment where they're attacked by by uh, by warriors with spears, and James Earl Jones spins his axe to deflect the spears. It's like something with like Thor's hammer would do. It's really awesome. <laughs> it's the move. If you were playing it in a video game, it would just be when you tapped one button really fast over and over again. Oh, uh, yeah. I've got the turbo button on the pro controller for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Um, they make their way down an undersea river. They're imperiled by a whirlpool and a pillar of fire. But don't worry, guys. The main characters are all, they're all in the same boat, so they're going to be all okay. The uh, Ascari warriors, they're going to die, but that's what they're there for. Um, I, I want to mention, this movie's a bit grosser than its its like its predecessor like there's these weird snake creatures and one of them like bursts out of like the Ascari warrior's mouth like it's really kind of like ooh, that's a little unsettling it's much more so than than king solomon's minds uh, you could would you say that this is the uh temple of doom of the uh alan quarterman I suppose. Uh, <laughs> yeah. there you go yeah no i suppose it is that's the you know, I mean, we 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 hear it get me another love analogies because they they help us, and by us I mean me. They help us make sense of a chaotic universe. So I uh, I'm all in on that. I think that is uh, that is fantastic. Um, with no Ascari warriors left to sacrifice, the main characters finally make it to the lost city of gold. Uh, and I mean, I don't know if you guys, uh, I immediately thought of this. But the, the city itself looks like an expensive health spa in New Mexico that's seen better days. <laughs> that's a great description. Yeah, I, I, I thought of it as a season one Star Trek The Next Generation set is what I thought. Oh, that's you, a good description, too. Yeah, but uh, I also just to get back to this, because I, I did write this down because I just I had to. Uh, when they discover the lost city of gold and they're looking at it from a distance, Jesse utters this line. Look the white race does exist. And oh my God. Just, like, oh my God. I'm like, oh. man, oh man, just lack of awareness. Uh, and then, <laughs> and then you get to ridiculous. go to the city. Yes. I, I, I get, oh my God. Uh, but, but, and, and this is, that's an aspect of Haggard's novel because in Haggard's novel, there's a, a, a lost, you know, a lost white race somewhere in central Africa living in this city. And, I don't even, I don't think there's any way to do that well by modern standards, even those of the eighties. Um, and, and here's the thing that, you know, it's just, those are elements of, of sort of the 19th century colonialist attitudes that permeate his writing that it, it's just tough to do and not have it feel like, wow, this is, is super racist in the 20th or 21st centuries. I mean, it's just, it's baked in to the to the mm-hmm. source material but we'll always have Aegon's hair chris uh so <laughs> well well here's the thing the the film and this is this is where my mind uh i had a moment watching this movie where my mind it's a terrible thing to lose one's mind or not to have a mind and i kind of lost my mind in the middle of this when so to mitigate the 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 racial issue uh, they have the lost city of gold populated by both black people and white people, which, okay, sure. But it creates another problem, right? Because you have both black people and white people living in this city and the black people are very dark skinned and the white people are very light skinned. So there seems to be no one of mixed ethnicity at all. There's no brown people in this city or even like mildly tan. You you mentioned that, yeah, one of their queens is played by Elvira, <laughs> Cassandra Peterson. Cassandra yeah. Peterson, yes. Known for playing a character who is one of the palest, whitest 
gothiest characters there was. And, yeah, and, and the yeah. other, and she plays like the dark-haired queen. There's two queens. There's the dark-haired queen who's evil, and then there's the blonde queen who's good. And it's just like, oh my goodness. It, it's so weird. Like, But it's just the fact that you have, there's been apparently no... No mixing of the races between in, in the city, like oh, in all the centuries, it's like, what am I? What am I looking at? What is happening here? Like, why don't why don't they all look like the hot guy from Bridgerton? Yeah, uh, well, you're talking. This is an upside down world where they won't let Cassandra Peterson talk either. So I am not exactly <laughs> yeah. sure what's going on. I kept waiting for her to say something. I thought, oh, oh, here's now she's going to say something. And she doesn't say a word the whole movie. There's a Cassandra Peterson story that I I just love. Very short. This movie, uh, 1986, she was at the Cannes Film Festival. And there's a great book that Roger Ebert wrote called uh, Two Weeks in the Midday Sun. It's just Mm -hmm. his kind of his diary of those two weeks of covering that festival. And it's if you're a Cannon fan, it's a great book because Cannon had a huge presence that year. And there are quite a few interviews with Menachem and he goes to some of the canon parties and stuff and talks about what there's like, but anyhow, he, 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 there's an interview with Cassandra Peterson in there and she talks about um, her, her neighbors, where she lives. And this is in the mid, in the early to mid eighties, Cassandra Peterson, her neighbor to her left side was John Paragon, who was the, he was a filmmaker and actor. He was in UHF, but probably best known as Jombie the genie on uh, Pee Wee's playhouse. Oh, sure. On the other side, to the right side, her neighbor over there was Paul Rubens, Pee Wee Herman himself. And across the street lived Vincent Price. Oh my and goodness. can you imagine being a kid on Halloween? That's the block to treating? live on. Yeah. And your your door is answered by Elvira, Pee Wee Herman and Vincent Price just in the. Oh, my God. It's just. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. What a. That is amazing. That's just the, that's just a piece of. I mean, I love I love Cassandra Peterson, but that's just one of these things that I read that once and it, it's blown my mind. And I can I can never not think of that house arrangement on that road for a few years and just what an incredible imagine the block parties. Imagine the yeah. imagine, imagine again. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know. Uh honestly that's that's the best uh that's the best neighborhood I can think of to live in. If if I hopped in, in a, into the DeLorean, I'd set my time and coordinates for you know, that street, you know, October 31st, like 1984. And that would be, that would be how I'd use my time machine if her. Oh yeah. I'd buy stock in Apple and then just settle on that block. (laughs) Uh, We also, I should say that that there are two Queens in the city, but the real power is Henry Silva as the high priest Aegon. And Henry Silva has the worst wig I've seen in a motion picture ever. It's amazing. Oh, whoa, whoa. Ah, I think you mean the best wig. Uh, and Henry it's- Silva is always <laughs> is giving it his all. And I love it. Oh, Henry, Henry Silva gives one of the most delightfully unhinged performances I've ever seen. Like he's he is literally cackling maniacally as he's dipping his victims into molten gold and turning them into golden statues. I love it. I I would totally go as his character for Halloween. <laughs> uh, the good news, by the way, is that Quartermain's brother Robeson is alive and well and living in the lost city of gold. Uh, Robeson is not a character from Haggard's novels, but instead one created for this film. And he is named after iconic African-American actor Paul Robeson, who played the role of Mbafu in the 1937 version of King Solomon's Mines. 
Here, Robeson is played by Martin Rabbit, who, unknown to the general public at the time, was Richard Chamberlain's partner of more than 30 years. Mm-hmm. And has, as a consequence, much more chemistry with with uh, Chamberlain than Sharon Stone does. Yeah, My and goodness. That, and that information wouldn't, he wouldn't come out publicly until his, uh, he wrote his biography in the early 2000s. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's, it's something though, that you can, you can understand. He always spoke fondly of these movies, even though they weren't, King Solomon's Mines did very well, but they weren't, they didn't have the lasting legacy that. I, I, that like it, obviously Indiana Jones or something many other things did but he always looked back and spoke very fondly on these movies and part of it is because he got to do that movie yeah he's very good in but like the the second one obviously has some problems but they're not him like it's not he he's doing really well and and I I see why he would be you know that he would have nothing but but good things to say about it because he's terrific in them. Mm-hmm. Um, so what happens is oh there's like a power struggle that ensues between the Quartermain brothers and their blonde queen and Aegon and his brunette queen and Aegon has an alliance with some of the tribes that live outside the city walls. Uh, I, oh I have to mention oh I can't I can't let this go because there's the in the temple. There's this sacrificial altar as well as a giant circular door in the floor that leads down into the pit of molten gold. So it slides open and people drop into the pit of molten gold. But like, it's made of plywood, guys. Like it's real, like you can (laughs) see it moving as it, like I have bookshelves I've put together from Ikea that are more solid. Yeah. Oh, not not great structural engineering in the uh, Lost City of Gold. (laughs) Yeah. No. Well, Austin, you were talking about the Temple of Doom. There, there's nothing more Temple of Doom than the, uh, you know, the end bad guy spot where the floor opens up down into yes. a fiery pit of doom. No. Yeah. That is abs- that's correct. Yes. Here, here it's molten gold rather than than actual, you know, an actual like volcanic thing. But uh, it's yeah, that's. It's amazing. And, uh, you know, he's got like a little switch on the on the, the table, like the altar. That's the word I was looking for, the altar. He's got a little switch that opens it. This is important later. I'm going to come back to the switch on the table because it's an important thing. What happens is so one, of the, the, one of these groups that Aegon's allied with comes into the city and its leader, who has some truly magnificent horns on his helmet, um, gets into kind of like a pissing contest with with Quartermain, where it's like he breaks a rock against his head to show how tough he is. And Quartermain, in response, uses a stick of dynamite. He hides it under a bench and, and uses magic to blow up the bench, which leads to the, everybody in the city wanting Quartermain to do the same thing to the sacrificial table that Aegon has installed. But he's out of dynamite. So what does he do? He calls upon, you know, he calls upon James Earl Jones to break it in two with his axe, which he does. And it's very cool. And and the table's now broken and Aegon's power is, is sort of, he, he leaves the city and he goes and gathers his forces for what will be the final, the final attack. Um, it's a lesson that don't use your dynamite until you really need it. It's the first time in these movies I think he ever runs out of dynamite. <laughs> yeah. <it's>, yeah. <laughs> But he doesn't. He doesn't run out of his mithril shirts, though. There's a runner. It's from the beginning of this movie until now that, uh, and, and he switches the mithril shirts. Like there's the first one that he gets that he lo- winds <laughs> there's up the lo- silver one. He winds up losing, and this is a shirt that he can put under his shirt, and then like no one, no blade can penetrate it. 
right? Right. And he buys uh, it in the in the opening, like the, the in the town in the opening when they're when they're dicking around for the first half an hour of the movie from your favorite character, I believe. Uh, and then he loses it later on, along with his gun, because he just leaves them lying on his bed unattended. But then later (laughs) in in this section, then we're getting to where he just discovers gold ones. Uh, And that he (laughs) like, there's one for him. And I think one for Robeson, right? Uh, Yeah. Yeah, there is. So they all have them now. Yeah. And it's uh, every time that it's being worn in combat and then someone, you know, throws something or tries to stab him or something, the reaction (laughs) of the attacker when He's frequently proclaimed like a demon, I think, uh, yes. or or just you get the reaction shots, uh, and it's just it's it's such a wonderful runner throughout the movie. It is, it, it yes, and I I, I I was remiss to not mention it before. <laughs> I even have a I have a note about Quartermain's magic shirt um, in it. But I didn't and also, it. Uh, pro tip for the listeners: if you want it to be effective, you shouldn't unbutton your regular shirt down to your navel. <laughs> Because then you will not be able to wear your mithril. Mithril. And so I, I always button my shirt enough to cover my mithril. That's yeah. just that's just good. That's just good fashion sense, folks. Yes. Um, so we have the final battle, which takes place at night, and there's this honestly a really unsettling image of all these men approaching the city and some of them in white hoods carrying torches as they march on the city and because it's at night it really like like the the fire of the torches really shows up and for a moment for a moment it looks like something out of gladiator with the fire being thrown it goes back to not looking very good immediately after that but there's a moment where i'm like oh it looks like gladiator and then it's 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 gone but um uh, but then, okay, so now how how are they, the, the, the people who are left behind the city, they're not trained soldiers, they're warriors out there trained, how are we going to beat them, Rob? What are we going to do? We're going to get, we're going to, I think that, I think there's only one answer and that's for, 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 for Alan to take the, the, the axe up to the lion head above the temple and he brings the axe down and, and this is where I don't know what's happening. It starts to shoot out green lightning. And the lion starts to melt like molten gold. Yeah. And 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 it looks like it sprays molten gold all over the city, which honestly looks like the city is being covered in brown mustard. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I won't be able to get that image out of my head watching this movie again. <laughs> And it only hits the bad guys. Like it hits the bad guys. It kind of scalds them. The good guys seem to be there. They're under the overhang. So it's like, oh, you know, that's fine. Um, and then, you know, Quartermain, he does this thing. He hits that thing a bunch of times. And each time there's this like this green flame, green lightning that shoots out. But then he, he crashes down through the ceiling again. Uh, and this time you can very clearly see the harness wires. You can see the harness wires a lot in the final sequence. Mm, it's not the only time in the movie where you can uh, <laughs> see how the, how the effects are. You can see the man behind the curtain. I, <laughs> I, I don't think um, you get the, the table. This is when my favorite, the table that, that was split a short time earlier has now magically been repaired so that, that, uh, that, that Cassandra Peterson can go and hit the switch to open the door in the floor. I'm not one of those people who's super like, oh, continuity errors or like, like, you know, I get it. You know, you're shooting a movie, but like they made such a big point of destroying the table and now it's back together. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's 
again, they they probably like the money that they would have paid a a continuity uh, assistant <laughs> on this film. Jay Lee spent on making, oh man uh, making Richard Chamberlain ski behind a train. Yeah. But they do get it's it's at <laughs> oh, least yeah. a moment for Jesse. Jesse gets a a bit of a hero moment where she gets to have her fight. Um, and so you know you get a yes listen. with with Cassandra Peterson. Yeah, who still has not said anything in this movie. I keep thinking she's going to say something at the end. Like, like she ends up like the the guy with the horns and and Quartermain end up fighting over the pit, and like Quartermain gets out of it in a move that could only be done with a harness. Like you couldn't, no human being, the human body can't move the way he does, like without a harness. And then and then Cassandra Peterson's on top of the horn guy, and then uh, Quartermain just kind of blows, and they go head down. I'm like. Just when I thought Cassandra Peterson was going to say something in the movie, it's like, oh no, into the into the gold, into the molten gold pool, and there you go. <laughs> it's like if it, she, she's playing the sort of role if 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 Harpo Marx played a uh, a villain in a movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and then you have one final fight between uh, Quartermain and Aegon before Aegon is covered in brown mustard, too. Uh, presumably, they're going to keep that statue. He turns into a gold statue, which presumably they'll keep in the city as a warning to other people to try and uh, come and take over their city. And uh, and then uh, that's the end. We, don't, we never find out if uh, Quartermain and Jesse go back to America to get married. Um you know they that that's that's left open, but we we have a, a nice you know freeze frame ending there. Gotta love a freeze frame ending. Gotta honestly, you do. Uh, it, Alan Quartermain and the Lost City of Gold did not fare at, as well at the box office as its predecessor, which put a premature end to the series. Uh, but there were plans for a third canon Quartermain film for a while, were there not? There were. It was actually something that Menachem kind of. I, I was going to say for a second there that he retained the rights to the character, but no, it was a public domain character. It's just he retained no, the no. desire to make another movie about this character. Uh, continued with it. Richard Chamberlain. Yeah, yeah. He had kind of kept in contact with Richard Chamberlain for decades after that until he passed away, really. Like, this is this is one of these projects that he was, you know, still working on while essentially, like, you know, having one foot in the grave. But Oof. yeah, he really, I mean, he, he, he kept the torch burning for a third Alan Quatermain movie for a long time. Alan Quatermain and the Jewel of the East, I believe, was one of the titles that, that the one of the working titles that they had. Uh, and apparently that was going to be based on a Haggard novel, Alan and She, uh, which brought together Haggard's two most popular characters, Alan Quatermain and the immortal queen, Asha who is also known as she who must be obeyed and 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 the 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 novel she has been brought to to the screen number of times over the years most notably in 1935 uh, a film from King Kong producer Marion C Cooper which served as the visual inspiration for Walt Disney's Evil Queen in Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs so so that they were planning to bring uh, the the she character and Alan Quatermain together for the third and final film. I'm genuinely sorry that we never got to see it. Yeah, yeah, that's that would have been something. <laughs> I mean, with especially especially at the time, um, yeah, at the time Menachem was trying to make it, it <laughs> I can't imagine how low budget this thing would have been had it had wow, actually yeah. found its found its way to the screen. It would have made it would have made Lost City look expensive <laughs> wow. 
for all of you, for all its flaws, I mean, these are two movies that are, you know, in a world where truth in advertising is not necessarily the the a key thing. These are movies that are exactly what they say they are on the tin. You know, they are two Indiana Jones inspired canon adventure films, and all that comes along with that, both both good and bad, all that comes along with that, but they are exactly what they purport to be. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, and they're entertaining. I will give them that, especially King Solomon's yeah. Minds. Um, yes, that's particularly got great, King Solomon's Minds. Yeah, that's got some great action scenes. And like everyone here has said a few times now, I think Richard Chamberlain is really great as this sort of character and having he's having a fun time. You can tell um, enjoying himself. And that comes comes through in the performance. It comes through on the screen. And yeah, so these these movies, if you can if you can get over, if you can look past some of the uh, issues, some of the yeah. places where the 1880s imperialist author source material <laughs> is very apparent through the 1980s sort yeah. of lens. So it's it's outdated on two levels mm-hmm. in that regard. Um, but if you can get through that, there's entertaining stuff. Yeah, these these movies have some very fun, very fun se- scenes, very fun set fi- set pieces, and dare I say, some, some memorable, some very memorable that are you know. Honestly, worth- I think all the stuff on the train in in that first in in King Solomon's Minds is terrific. Like mm-hmm. the train um, is is a really good sequence. Like there, there's. We, we watched Jewel of the Nile not long ago, and there's a train sequence in that that was so unmemorable, I forgot about it. But mm-hmm. here, it's like the train sequence is great. Yeah, I mean, the action sequences in general in this thing, uh, compared to some, like, that, that movie in particular, uh, which had a much larger budget, um, they really did a lot with what they had. And the, the pacing in these things is also even, and I know that, uh, you know, Lost City of Gold, it, it takes a while to get in theoretically but those scenes are still interesting and like i i was not bored watching the either of these movies no no absolutely not uh sometimes bewildered but never bored yes (laughs) (laughs) that 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 would be a good tagline for many a many a canon movie Sometimes, be, be, sometimes bewildered but never bored you know the that's that's a golden globus production summed up right there. right there <laughs> Austin, thank you so much for joining us today. Again, your books, The Canon Film Guide, Volumes 1 and 2. I can't say enough great stuff. If anybody out there is interested in Canon films, they are, I I will say, definitive works. Uh, And I can't wait for the third one. I I know that you're hard at work on it. uh, And there's a lot of stuff. But I will uh, will be there as soon as as it comes out. Because... Uh, they are great. Can you tell people where they can be found and where you can be found on the on social media? Well, my book can be found, I mean, in all the obvious places, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, but also through your local bookstore. If you are lucky enough to have one of the four or five independent bookstores still uh, somewhere remaining, <laughs> somewhere close to you in the world, get out and, I mean, if you can walk into a place and, and support it that way, they can order the book for you. And that's that's probably my favorite way to, <laughs> to to recommend to anybody to 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 buy the book because absolutely oh and, yeah those your your small independent bookstores are they're worth supporting and they can order it for you if 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 they don't if they don't have it and myself as for myself I can be found on Twitter and on Facebook both at Canon Film Guide all all one word and I am 
on there all the time, particularly on Twitter. I'm pretty busy every day just posting canon stuff, canon stuff. My my archives are insanely out of hand here and I there's only so much room in the books. The these two books capped out at the second book is a thousand pages and it's actually was second I, book is I, massive. <laughs> yeah, and I, I hit the limit on what, what our printer could actually print. Oh. So I, I had squeezed everything in there just 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 under the under the hard cap. But yeah, but that's fitting in everything I can. There's there's so much other stuff that Twitter, Facebook, those give me a great place to to share them, to show things, to just keep the canon discussion going. Any questions, anything? I, I love talking with people on there. We are big fans of canon films, and we're Absolutely. big fans of the canon film guide. It's it's yeah. a, Like I said, it's a definitive work, and, and anybody who is even remotely... If you're listening to this show, you, you've got to be at least a little interested in canon films because you know it, we've covered a number of them over a number of series. I can't recommend these, these books highly enough. They are fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. That That's awesome. I really appreciate that. Well, next week, uh, we are going to be uh, looking at two more Indiana Jones style adventures. This time, uh, we are going to be looking at two European produced adventure films, uh, both of which feature female protagonists, although they are quite different from one another. So join us next week as we explore the perils of Gwendolyn in the land of the Yik Yak, as well as Matt Simber's yellow hair and the Fortress of Gold. Again, thank you so much for listening. We are your hosts, Chris Iannacone and Rob Lamorges. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing and following us on Twitter, Instagram, and threads at Get Me Another Pod. If you like the show, tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell the residents of that crumbling desert health spa that you ran across randomly, and join us next time as we continue to explore what happens when Hollywood says... Get me another.